Season three of We Are All Americans was recorded in the summer of 2020 in the midst of the global COVID-19 pandemic and the reinvigorated Black Lives Matter movement after the murders of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and George Floyd. Welcome to We Are All Americans, conversations about how family stories are passed down from generation to generation and what it means to be American in the context of multiculturalism, immigration, military service, Black Lives Matter, white privilege, and indigeneity. I'm your host, Michelle Jacquis, and today we are recording at the ICA LA in downtown Los Angeles as part of Field Workshop Action Projects, a series of short-term projects and activities that focus on learning, civic engagement, and self-care. And I'm here with one participant. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Asuka Hisa. And tell me a little bit about um, yourself and a family story about how you or your family arrived in the U.S. or about what it's like to live in the U.S. Okay, a family story. Mm, I am a third generation Japanese American. Uh, so that means my grandfather uh, came to the United States. Uh, I do not have an exact date, but I'm going to guesstimate it is the early uh, 20th century from Japan, from um, the Shizuoka region of Japan, and uh, was a merchant uh, and did some import-export and came and settled and uh, did business in Los Angeles. First, not in Los Angeles, I believe it was up in the Bay Area first, but then came to Los Angeles. Uh, my father was born in uh, 1934. <laughs> uh, a family of four children. Him, he was the youngest, and the th three sisters were the oldest. And they lived in, uh, in downtown Los Angeles and ran a business. Uh, my mother... Um, is born in Tokyo, Japan, and she came to the United States as a student, a college student, uh, needed to get away from family for, for various reasons, <laughs> and then came and worked at the business of my father's family. Oh. So that's how they met. Uh -huh. And uh, she's very young, you know, she's a college kid, you know, so, uh, vivacious and adventurous already by coming by herself to this country. Uh, my father obviously is an American um, and uh, had uh, gone to UCLA and did a stint uh, in the army and um, they met and she worked with him uh, for, you know, for the business and got married. And then I came around a few years later. <laughs> so I was born in Los Angeles. Yeah. Did you, do you still have ties? Do your parents still have ties in Japan? Uh, yes. Well, um, my father less. Um, a lot of their family, a lot of his side of the family came over to the United States. Um, my mother, uh, all her family was back in Japan. So 
they're kind of dying out now in Japan, and they don't have her siblings uh, have children, but they're not having children. So it's interesting to see how the family tree is is not growing more branches and leaves. So. Right, a lot of generations don't have as many kids, right? My grandfather was one of five, I think, and he's the first to be born in the U.S. on my mom's side, and my mom only had two kids. My mom's brother had no kids, and I only have one. Yeah. 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 Depends on the family, yeah. but our family is, uh, is uh, pretty small. You said your father came in 35? My father was or, born. Yeah, sorry, your father was born in 35. My father was yes, born yes, in yes. 34. 34. So did he and his parents end up in the internment camps? Yes, they did. They did. Yeah. He was about nine years old. Wow. And they were based in Heart Mountain, Wyoming. Did they talk about it much? No. And I, I wonder, well, they did not talk about it very much, so I actually don't have a lot of transmitted stories about, oh, the days in the internment camp. Uh, there's um, a famous photograph that is actually on the cover of books about Japanese Americans in internment camps that is of my father walking wow. alongside the barracks at Heart Mountain, Wyoming. And it was a moment where a camera person, a person with a camera popped out and took his picture with a friend uh, and I'll get to the friend in a second, but um, these two boys were walking alongside the barracks. It's an incredible landscape picture, sad and incredible. Um, and I'm, that's one story that my father told me. He said, I remember seeing the guy pop out. I don't remember what he looked like, but I just looked at the camera because the camera was incredible. Uh, or just, it was yeah. unusual to see. You weren't allowed to take pictures uh, at, no one was allowed to take pictures of the conditions at the camps. So to see someone with a photograph, and my father was a uh, sort of an, an, uh, an inventor, tinkerer, so he liked mechanical things and, mm -hmm. and cameras were something that he really loved. He didn't like taking pictures. He just liked the mechanics of a camera. Yeah. <laughs> so that was his memory, but then that memory on the flip side is this famous photograph that is actually at Heart Mountain, Wyoming on a plaque. With him in it. Yeah, and he didn't know until he got there and said, oh my goodness, that's that picture and that was that guy with the camera. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then I have since found that picture multiple times. And then the friend he was with, um, you know, I work in the art world, right? And I, I work in museums. And I later found out that the other boy in the picture was a, an art uh, world colleague's father. Oh. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, so that was really interesting that our paths kind of meet in that way. That's really fascinating. It's It's... One of the things, particularly when the um, migrant camps started happening, when we became aware that the migrant camps were happening on the border of U.S. and, and Mexico, mm -hmm. I, I have gotten really interested in, in 
the parallels between the Japanese internment camps, the concentration camps for Jews in, in Europe, and, and the current migrant camps now, and wanting to collect, get people together from those three demographics to share stories and conversations. Yeah. Uh, uh, three distinct experiences and, and circumstances, uh, but yet the commonality is yeah. our capacity to even do that kind of thing exactly. to another human being. Yeah. When I think of our situation right now with the pandemic and being on lockdown and being inside and, and limited, I think of that internment time where they were taken away from everything they knew for at least three years, right? Or yeah, more. Yeah. So we're capable of overcoming incredible situations. Fortunately, there's resiliency in the human yeah. <laughs> being, but it's also terrible that these things happen. It's, it's really kind of hard to wrap my head around. I know like as a, you said your family didn't really talk about it much. I have, I'm, I'm, I know much more about my mom's side of the family than my father's side, but my mom's side, because our family, most of our family arrived at the late 1800s to New York, and some stayed in New York and some went to Pittsburgh. I, um, but we did have family who were in concentration camps, some who survived and some who didn't, and, and I have, one cousin that was always, we, everybody always talked about, Cousin Louisette, who, I don't know even what country she lived in, but she survived because nuns hid her in a convent. And so as a kid, we just knew, like this was like common stories our family would tell all the time and talk, talk about very openly. And it's interesting, but at the same time, like my grandparents, every time there was another Holocaust movie, my grandparents were like, I don't need to see that. Why do we need to keep making these movies? I'm not, you know, why do we have to keep talking about this? Mm -hmm. But it was, it was this sort of strange, I understand that like, it's too painful to talk about, but at the same time, my family still did to make sure younger generations knew. Or it's, it sort of felt like it put us in a place where we understood sometimes we still have to be secretive of who we are in a weird way, which is easier for me because it's Jewish is not really a visible identity. Mm. I hear this a lot about how younger Japanese Americans don't have these accounts because there is such a reservation. I mean, it's sort of a characteristic of Japanese people to be reserved. Um, but that time of um, dealing with their people questioning their loyalty and patriotism while incarcerating them at the same time is a strange place to be and a very conflicting and hard um, position to be put in, you know, just saying, you're not loyal to this country, we're suspect of, we're suspect of you and you need to be put away. Um, and then to expect when they come out that they will be loyal. And that the Japanese Americans who were 
did everything they could to show how American yes. they are yeah. or that they, yeah, how American they are. And <laughs> some things were so, uh, you know, typical of that, like we're, here's our, um, Little League, here's our Girl Scouts and our Boy Scouts. Definitely Boy Scouts was a big thing. Mm -hmm. Like they just kept doing Boy Scouts in the camps and they wow. did the baseball team and they did the, you know, the very uh, archetypal like things. America, I guess yeah. you could say they're American things. I mean, it's just sports. Because they were American though. But so they were sense. these things that they yeah. did and they felt that's how they grew up and that's how they did it. And so yeah. they were just showing, but it was a weird thing to be questioned uh, about being American. And, you know, some fought, of course, mm -hmm. the most valiant battles in the war on against Japan yeah. <laughs> and the alliance and for the United States. And still, you know, it was, they were still in the camp. So that's, it's such a crazy thing. Um, but the, the reservation and not having enough oral history about it or the accounts, I mean, they're all really dying out now. So to be able to capture those, it's really now. Um, it's almost too late. Are there, do you know of organizations that are already trying to do that work? Yes, I, I, like I imagine. The well, Japanese the Japanese American National Museum, of course, or a Japanese American uh, Cultural Community Center. Yeah. Um, they, they're, Definitely, that's here locally. I mean, there's yeah. people all over uh, the country that that would be able to capture this uh, stuff. But they, but it is really hard because it's sort of of a nature to to be reserved, not talk about the bad things. It's sort of a general human like let's not talk about the bad things. Let's mm -hmm. remember the good things. Right. Let's try to find um, you know the things that were positive, and they want to remain in that space of what what we still did. Con despite the circumstances we were in. Right. Uh, you know. So what do you think? So those are the stories you end up hearing, but you don't hear how brutally. Um, yeah. Because that's too hard to have to. It's hard to relive. And they um, resist being able to put that out there, maybe because there's still, there's still a sort of concern about loyalty, you know, yeah. and telling yeah. the truth. I, I remember when September 11th happened, feeling this like fear that, that there was, that life in the U.S. was going to be hard for anyone who was not a white Christian male. <laughs> Harder, because it already was hard. But it felt like all of a sudden it felt like a sh different shift. And, and again, with Trump in power, it feels even more so that our, you know, all of us may be our loyalties questions. What do you think it means to be American? I, I do believe in the freedom to be uh, when you come to live in this country or you're born in this country. Mm -hmm. uh, there are 
amazing things in the spirit of of this uh, land and culture. Every every place will have a fraught history, and against the United States' fraught history and problematic <laughs> incidents and oppressions and conflicts and all of the things that we are uprising about right now in this time, that's there. And we're all collectively trying to work hard to um, tell the story uh, in a way that moves us to a better place, not to like, sort of like <laughs> facing it, but then building a, against it, right? A building. Yeah. Uh, and that's possible here. I will believe that we have enough um, enough openness if we and we're able to we have a freedom to fight for keeping that openness. It's hard. you get put down. you can literally get killed for these things, but mm-hmm. it's still there. Uh, I don't, I think there's, to be American is to have possibility. I, I believe it. Um, I have a place of, um, openness, like my everyday is, is quite open to possibilities. And I think the structures in which I work and, and live um, are conducive to openness, but I think that's not the, that's definitely not the case for many people that they are in oppressive situations and they are, it's harder for them to see that openness existing sometimes, but it's there. Yeah. What are you fearful of and what are you hopeful for? (laughs) Fearful of... Uh, I'm fearful of a con- Let me think about this. I'm fearful of people um, being a f- fearful. <laughs> I'm fearful of pe- people who are fearful. <laughs> I'm, I'm fearful of people who continue to suspect others or judge people or because they're afraid. I, I, yeah. I, the, the society of fear is what's... Mm, that gives me anxiety for sure, that people are, are doing things out of fear which eventually fear can devolve into hate. Yeah. And I, I know that combating fears comes from exposure or education or learning or um, experience. And that comes from um, a nurturing from community and people like if I have a fear 
I try to address that fear, but but others don't. They just try to not address it, and then it festers into something that can be um, problem a problem or harmful or whatever. Right. So I'm fearful of the growing fears. And it seems that world, like what you described, is almost like a worldview that really, from what I've observed. Um, shapes the way you navigate the world and do your job here at the museum and the programs that you organize, like the connection to education and knowledge can, recognizing that that can, if, you're, if you are educated and knowledgeable about difference or the other, you may be less fearful and therefore less hateful. Like that feels like it really embodies the work that you do. Oh. That's very nice to say. That's, I think, what I'm, I, it's all about exposing people to others and, and the power of this human ability to create and seeing that from different people in different ways, that certainly creates more embrace than, than you know. Yeah. A, a recoil. Mm -hmm. So that's my goal, of course, I want to, to want people to know each other <laughs> and see each, and experience each other either through art or through this kind of engagement. Right. Um, and it's a, it's a process of learning. I, I'm someone who's driven by a passion of learning, not just for myself, selfishly, I'd like to just, I'm voracious in trying to find out more about things. Earlier we were talking about sound equipment, <laughs> just wanting to learn more about sound equipment, to, to uh, you know, cultural things, of course, and everything under the sun, I'm just curious. Um, but I think what excites me is sharing that curiosity or uh, sharing something that I feel it, getting to know somebody they would like to. And I think that's what, um, helps combat fear. So what am I hopeful for is that, you know, people uh, have the courage to combat the fear. I'm hopeful that people, uh, I think in this time of um, civil and social unrest and uh, racial justice that, the you know, at first there'll be a process of, of fear and then moving toward an openness and understanding, like a discovery. You know, it's very exciting. I tell people that I live to give people the tingles of discovery, like this, like, ooh, that's so, like you feel nurtured, you feel cared for when you, you were, you know, introduced to something exciting, whether that be a little workshop to make something. That's why I like doing things where it's learning by doing um, and making, because you just get those tingles when you were like, oh my, I didn't know how to do that before, and now I do. It's so. like, it reminds me of when I used to teach sculpture, I loved so much teaching the, the women in my class how to weld. Yeah. And, or even the men, but anybody who was terrified of the fire, and then watching them realize they could do this, and it wasn't that hard, and the thrill. Oh, yeah. This thing that That's I what I live for. So great. It's such a good feeling, for sure. It's 
and it's, you know, you may have felt it when you welded for the first time and you're excited to give someone else that sensation of empowerment and, yes. and a demystification of something that caused them and, you know, they were like, that's not for me or whatever. These breaking down these, these, uh, <laughs> these profiles, you know, just, it's a lot of work, but it's also can be very joyful, yeah. you know? Yeah. Anything else you want to talk about? Oh, um, or anything you want to ask me? <laughs> <laughs> well, Michelle, how long have you been doing this? Um, I started this project in, I think the first recorded conversations were May, 2018. Nice. It grew out of a sabbatical that I was in where I thought, well, I'm still doing it, but it's slowly. I, I, my original attempt for sabbatical was to make an artist book out of these letters that my great-grandfather wrote to my great-grandmother during World War I. Mm -hmm. And they were both fairly new immigrants and um, I'm not exactly sure when they came. If they came late 1800s or early 1900s. And that's probably our next participant ringing the doorbell, right? Yep. That's an exciting yeah. sound. Somebody's at the door yes. for the well, next thing. Thank you so much You're for welcome. having this conversation with me. It was really great. My pleasure. Thank you.